Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can also find our past shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, and I'm joined for this segment of Off the Record by the irrepressible Chris Ryan. Chris, welcome to Off the Record. Paul, it's, it's tremendous to be here. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to have you. We're going to turn your microphone down so we don't give people the unfortunate spikes on the radio. Very or, or how are we doing now? We good? No, we're, we're, we're good. You're still a little hot. Let's, uh, I know you're, you know. I, That's I it's, it's as good as I get. I don't mean anything by it, but just just modulate your own voice here. So, so there's a lot been happening in the news since we last uh, got together. The, we had a recent Democratic debate that there were a dozen, a dozen folks on the stage uh, yakking and clacking. And uh, that was certainly interesting. And then there's this little problem around the Ukraine and a small impeachment inquiry going on that seems to seems to focus uh, everybody's attention. I, I do want to say one thing. I, I'm uh, on a Thursday. We learned that my former colleague Elijah Cummings of Maryland passed away. Elijah Cummings was a Democratic congressman from Maryland. Uh, a stalwart, progressive, passionate, fiery champion of people, champion, uh, just a champion of justice. I served with him on the uh, Committee of Oversight and Government Reform as a colleague, and I can certainly remember uh, learning a lot from Elijah. Elijah went on in recent, in recent years. He was the chair of the Oversight and Government Reform Committee and stood up to the Trump administration and was going to take uh, take no backtalk and stand for no BS. And he was 68 years old, passed away after an illness. Um, it, it's given me great pause to remember him and honor him in his passing. Today, the House had a moment of silence in his memory and he set a high bar for public service. Uh, he was an honest, straight-ahead, really wonderful, wonderful man. And my condolences go to his family and to all those who loved him. He will be very difficult to replace, especially at this time as the impeachment inquiry ramps up uh, and the need for oversight and government reform is as strong as ever, if not stronger, given what has happened and what is coming to light about what our government has been doing in our name. Uh, you've got a you've got an administration that is just gone rogue. They're off. They're off on a frolic and detour. They've got they've got they've got private lawyers for the president conducting shadow foreign policy. Rudy Tutti Giuliani apparently was tasked by the President of the United States with handling the uh, Ukraine matter. How do, we, how do we pressure Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden? How do, we, how do we get Ukraine to interfere in our election? Seems to have been the aim of 
uh, President Trump. So he called on Rudy Tootie Giuliani. I'm Rudy Tootie Giuliani, and I tell you, I'm I'm, I'm not going to cooperate. I'm not going to cooperate with you. I'm not going to cooperate with anybody's phony investigation. This is just a put-up witch hunt. This is just another witch hunt. I, I, I'm from New York, and I don't need to put up with any of your 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 investigations. I don't, I don't believe in them. I don't believe in the Constitution. I'm just a lawyer. What do I know about the Constitution? What I know about is my client. My client is President Trump. President Trump wants me to do something. I go out and do it. He wants me to go investigate Ukraine. I'm going to go investigate Ukraine. What can I find out about Ukraine? I'm going to fly all over. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to do whatever I can because that's what I am. I'm a lawyer and, I, and I'm going to represent my client. What's your beef? What's your beef? Now, I'm not going to say I didn't do anything wrong. Maybe I did something wrong, but nobody can prove that I did anything wrong. It's not criminal. Maybe it's criminal. Okay, so I said maybe it's criminal. But who cares? Nobody really cares anyway because President Trump could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue. I mean, I, I, I would give him the gun. I, I, what does it matter? Nobody could find him. Maybe he's criminal. Maybe he's not a criminal. Is he a crook? Nobody said he's a crook. Well, maybe somebody said he's a crook, but he's not really a crook. He's the President of the United States. And what that means in my book is he could do anything he wants to do. He tells me to go out and do something. I'm going to go do something. It's a lot there. There's a lot there. Let's unpack that for a minute. So foreign policy is supposed to be conducted in the interest of the American people. Uh, it is not to be conducted in the interest of the personal interests of the president of the United States, even the President Trump that we currently enjoy. It's just not right. And the idea of this shadow foreign political machinery that bypassed the State Department and sort of co-opted members of the cabinet, we now know that Vice President Pence may have been involved, Mick Mulvaney may have been involved, uh, Ambassador Sunderland is involved, the uh, special representative Kurt Volker is involved, and Rudy Tudi Giuliani seems to be the guy that everybody was taking direction from, or at least coordinating with about how to do it. And apparently, as we also saw, two uh, Russian-born associates of Rudy Giuliani, who the president claims he didn't know, but we've got pictures of the president with these guys from five years ago, are, are all in this thing to try to pressure Ukraine, including by withholding foreign aid in order to um, have a quid pro quo. And uh, what came in yesterday was the following report. Uh, speaking to reporters at the White House, acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney acknowledged that the Trump administration held up U.S. military aid to Ukraine in part due to the president's request for that country to investigate on the basis of no evidence that the hacked Democratic National Committee email servers are in Ukrainian custody. I mean, this this thing gets weirder and weirder. Chris, what's going on? How's a poor how's a how's a poor former congressman to understand what is happening to our country? What what's going on here? I mean, there's so much. I mean, there's there's Turkey right now, which is um, you know at the forefront of a lot of individuals' thoughts and the invasion of Syria. Now a ceasefire has been agreed to. Um, there's the Ukraine investigation, which continues to move on there was the meeting between president trump and uh, democratic leadership in which you have trump and pelosi <laughs> calling each other senile and deranged and, tr and trump trump called nancy said to nancy pelosi you're a third-rate politician yeah i, I gotta tell you i i mean whatever nancy pelosi is whatever people may think of her and uh, she is the favorite um uh, object of derision for many republicans <laughs> 
she is not a third-rate politician. I mean, that, that's really an odd thing for him to say. But so the, the thing with Trump has always been to flood the zone, flood the zone with um, you know, as many different things as possible to kind of deviate from where uh, folks are thinking uh, in any given day and yeah, but to listen, take the eye off the ball in regards to, uh, to impeachment. Yeah, but how do you play man-to-man defense um, when he's flooded the zone? You can't. You, right. you, you can't. You, there's no man-to-man defense you play, here. You've got to play zone. you got to play zone. And who's in the zone? I mean, is Nancy in the zone? A dime or a nickel. What? You've got to play a dime or a nickel. A dime or a nickel. So Nancy Pelosi is, is in the zone. She's the point guard here trying to, trying to work with President Trump. But he's not working with anybody. I mean, what he wants to do is simply distract and, and d- deny distract um, and keep the keep, and there is no the end game. Like the there's end. no. It's just to live. Like it's just to live and make it through the day or the controversy to win the moment. And um, I mean, that's the that's the tough part here. Is that uh, I don't know how this ends, but it seems like things are getting progressively worse. And it seems like we've been saying that for a long period of time. Oh man! But look, I mean, this was coming. This was coming from the beginning. This, you know, the kind of the lying, cheating, stealing. Uh, was bit baked into the cake. Uh, it's all coming out now. We'll see how it ends. Vice President Pence could be going down if both if both the president and Pence were to be removed from office. Of course, then you'd have President Pelosi. Uh, I wonder how the de- the Republicans feel about that. Frankly, I wonder how the Democrats feel about that because that might not be the best thing for the Democratic Party. It's off the record with Paul Hodes. We've been talking with Chris Ryan just. Our heads are spinning, folks. They're spinning with the rash of public events and public disclosures here on Off the Record on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet. We'll be back after this to talk about debts, deficits, and politics. Don't go away. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. And uh, we're also a podcast these days on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for all of my 21st century friends. I'm very pleased to be joined by Chase Hageman. Chase works with the Concord Coalition. In a way, he's a bit of a colleague of mine because I, in full disclosure, sit on the New Hampshire Concord Coalition Advisory Board, which I'm very happy to do. Uh, Chase is the is is like the guy. He's the Concord Coalition guy for the entire region. He's a senior smart. Person. He's got his own show on WKXL, but it's always fun when I get to control the conversation. And uh, he's interested in all kinds of things. He's interested in politics. He's interested in debts and deficits. And he's especially interested in, in becoming a new father. 
Chase, <laughs> I, I hear I hear there's a baby on the way. There is, and thanks for the, the nice welcome onto the show, Paul. I, I'm happy to be called one of your colleagues, and you're absolutely right. Uh, likely the, the most significant interest in my life right now is the baby boy that will be arriving here uh, within probably uh, three to five weeks. So I'm going to have a very busy fall and, and start to 2020. Well, you know, it, it's, um, it's one of those things that people can talk to you about. They can, they can tell you uh, how it works. They can try to prepare you. You can try to prepare. You get the room ready. You've got the bag ready to go. You've uh, told all your relatives and your friends and everybody's getting ready for it. <laughs> and then once it hits... It's like nothing else. There's no, there's, there's no way to prepare you for, for, I, I'm, for I'm what I'm getting it means. that feeling. I, I am getting that almost overwhelming, I, I have nowhere to go, I'm about to be a dad feeling that uh, many people I've talked to about having children have communicated to me that that's, that's an absolutely normal feeling. Uh, so I think you're right. I think in my, in my mind... I feel ready to be a father, but I think in reality I'm in no way prepared. Yeah, that you know, I mean, it's kind of like getting married. The uh, same thing. People <laughs> tell you all about it, but until you've done it, the uh, the the joy and the the joy and the challenge is um, is uh, is really not anything you can you can prepare somebody for. Right. But, right. So so here's let let's just get uh, let's turn our attention. Uh, to to another subject that I find pretty pretty interesting, and that's the following: that we now have a national debt of twenty three trillion dollars. Now, I don't know about you, but my brain, my poor <laughs> little brain, cannot even imagine what $23 trillion is. I mean, people, we talk in trillions, we talk in billions. I mean, my, my ability to compute sort of stops at about a million. I, I, yeah. I get a million. I, you know, that's, that's a manageable number. So a billion is, what, 100 million or 1,000 million? Oh, it's uh, nine zeros. So I think that's a hundred million. A hundred million. So if you got a hundred million, no, I'm sorry, it's a, it's a thousand it's billion. A thousand otherwise, a hundred million would be a hundred billion. Okay, so right. So there you go. So we got we, math. Ma- math. You know, ma- we're math challenged. I, I, I yeah, freely yeah. admit it. I'm math challenged. It's why I became a lawyer. It's why I'm a musician. And you know, I went into theater and acting, and now politics because I'm math challenged. So I get that. Okay, so we've got a thousand million is a billion. And then, how many billions makes a trillion? Well, I'm, I'm going to go with a thousand. <laughs> okay, so let's go with a thousand billion. <laughs> Either way, think of it more like a trillion dollars is a one followed by twelve zeros. Right. So, uh, we, so which is you're right. It's a hard num- number to fathom. Right. So, so we got twenty three of those lined up. Twenty three of those simoleons lined up to uh, to make the national debt. It's twenty three trillion dollars in the last um uh 20 years right basically since 2000 uh we've accumulated uh 23 trillion dollars in debt and we're not here to 
at the moment. Let's just defer how we got here, why we got here, who's called. Yeah, no, I think it's a good call because I could blame both parties for it. It's not quite, we haven't, we haven't accumulated 23 trillion in, in quite that short amount of time, but it has been quite a bit. I think it's on the, on the, in the range of 15 to 16 trillion over the last 20 years. Okay, so, so 15 or 16 in the last trillion years. We did in the year 2000. As I recall, get down to a basically wasn't that a year when the federal budget balanced and we didn't have an annual. We had yeah, uh, we had a balanced budget. Yeah, yeah, we had a balanced budget for a couple of years. We had a surplus. I think yeah. we had three years of either balance or surplus, and then. But that's where most people, um, excluding you, Paul. I'm not saying you're confused by this, but oftentimes people will sort of use deficit and debt almost uh, in a synonymous fashion, and they're not. The debt, as you were alluding to earlier, is the accumulation of all of our deficits. So even if we had a balanced budget with no deficit in one year, that doesn't mean the debt goes away. It just means we didn't add to it that year. Right. Now, what has been in the news uh, is the news that this year we will have a $1 trillion annual uh, deficit. And right. that's what's projected for next year, another trillion-dollar annual deficit. Now, yeah, I, I will say, well, let me just say that without, without, I'm, I'm, I, I'll hold my partisan blame, <laughs> blame hat for a moment and just point out that, that uh, uh, Barack Obama came into office, things were uh, on the brink of true financial and economic disaster. We somehow avoided uh, the Great Depression. We only had a Great Recession. And by the time uh, Obama left office, if I recall, annual... Uh, deficits had been reduced to under five hundred billion dollars. Still a big yeah, number, that, but the trend yeah. the trend was at least uh, was a little better. Uh, things were recovering, and yeah, and there were there were a number of reasons for that, Paul, and, and some of it was uh, Congress, you know, making some difficult decisions along the way and uh, setting some more stringent spending requirements. But by and large, it was uh, the fact that the economy was growing again and revenues were on their way back up but there also was a, a downward trend in uh, spending as a percentage of the economy as well so uh, i'm not going to get partisan about it either i'll just say yes you're absolutely right in that period it did drop from over a trillion dollars as a result of the great recession down to i think it was around 430 billion dollars and then now we're back springing back up in the opposite direction and one of the one of the factors of course has been the the results, uh, or at least many, attribute uh, this uh, climb to not just a Congress going on a bender, but also to the tax cut um, that the Trump administration put in, yeah. which reduced uh, revenues by uh, essentially um, a vast reduction in both corporate uh, tax rates as well as um, an, uh, a, a drop in the tax rate for those at the very top. And and let's just yeah, put aside and, the politics. Okay? Yeah, and, and that is true, that, that the uh, Tax Cuts and Job Act, uh, Jobs Act was a big factor in worsening uh, the long-term trajectory of the federal budget and the deficits that were expected to be accumulated. But uh, we tend to, in large part, because we kind of get caught up in the politics of the day, ignore the fact that there is a structural deficit within the federal budget as well. So 
I know we're talking about, you know, a trillion dollars here, a trillion dollars there, which is, as we've already laid out, a, a huge figure. Um, but we also already had baked into the cake uh, long-term structural deficit that we were going to, we were on track to hit a trillion dollars anyway, but recent policy decisions have accelerated that process. So we went from a trillion dollars expected a few years from now to all of a sudden it's on the doorstep. As my grandmother used to say, a trillion dollars here, a trillion dollars there, and <laughs> yeah. soon you've got I don't know if money. Anyone, I don't know if anyone's grandmother has ever said that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, 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 I guess my grandmother was prophetic, you know. She saw, she saw what was coming. She was a depression baby. And yeah. uh, she said, a trillion here, a trillion there, and soon you've got real money. What are we going to do with this? But, well, so, and, you, and I do want to make another a quick point here. We, you know, we talked about, you brought up the Great Depression, and, and it's probably semantics. You know, for some people, when you consider the Great Recession and, and the difficulty they went through and how long it took uh, for the economy to sort of come out of that basement. But, you know, we, we talked about how, how big the national debt is. And, frankly, as a percentage of the economy, our, our publicly held debt is the highest it's been since World War II. And I bring that up because I want to compare that era to now. We, we had high and growing debt at that point because of a wartime budget and what was going on in the world around us. We now have a large and growing deficit because of, again, that structural issue on what programs are growing and how, how revenue is not keeping up. So we're not in a crisis or a recession that's prompting this growth in deficits in the long-term trajectory. It's... We're, Frankly, we've been ignoring the reality of needing to make some difficult decisions and just let the tab build along the way. So let me let let's just now put that in a box and recognize <laughs> that recognize that uh, you know while many people look at the day to day politics as you said there are structural issues um, serious structural issues in our economy and with the federal budget that uh, are, ch- are really challenging when it comes to. Uh, dealing with our our debt and our annual deficits. And I want to just hold that thought because we're going to talk about what those are um, a little bit uh, later. I promise you we'll get to it. But my, (laughs) my immediate question in a few minutes before a break is, when I uh, look at what is going on in politics today, and I uh, am a follower of political discourse in the news, on television, I've been watching the Democratic debates, um, been participating in some ways in some of the earlier debates, uh, <laughs> and, and I, by, I have noticed uh, in, an absence of any discussion about uh, structural issues for our economy. I have not heard anybody talk about Social Security. I have talked, we heard a lot about health care and different Democratic plans for health care and huge numbers thrown around as if they were beanbags at a ta- at a picnic <laughs> summer summer toss. Almost like throwing a trillion here, a trillion there. A trillion here, a trillion there. But I have not heard anybody mention the word deficit. I have not, in the at least in the Democratic debates that I've followed, why? Why isn't anybody talking about it? Because it seems to me that with the talk about what it will 
cost to invest in a revised, reformed health care with the costs that we are facing for tackling climate change, assuming we even get there, it seems to me that the existence of a $23 trillion deficit and an annual debt, I'm sorry, a $23 trillion debt and an annual deficit of a trillion dollars is a serious topic worthy of discussion. Why, Absolutely. why is it being avoided? <laughs> Uh, I think the answer to that question is probably going to take longer than the probably minute and a half I have left before we have to go to break. But I'll just say, uh, just to correct the record a little bit, there have been some mentions of the debt and deficit in the debates. I've watched most of them. I didn't get to watch all of the most recent ones. Uh, but at best, they have been honorable mentions. They certainly haven't been you know, the, the primary topic of discussion. And, and you mentioned health care, and health care is a huge factor and what's going on, and, and, and that is a topic that needs to be discussed. I would like to see it discussed in a more, uh, I don't want to say realistic manner, but one that has the practicality of what our current fiscal situation is attached to it and, and how we get through growth in health care costs as well as deciding who's ultimately going to pay for it. But I digress. The, the short answer to why it's not being talked about is I think it's really easy in that debate scenario to stick with rhetoric and talking points because you have such limited time. And then it's just easier to have a have political football. Social Security is still the third rail of politics. It's easier to tap into, I guess, the, the, um, the, the winds of, of the day in terms of you know, getting your ship down course ahead of the candidate next to you. We're talking with Chase Hageman of the Concord Coalition. We're talking about debts, deficits, and politics here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL, AM and FM, streaming live at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with more Off the Record after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are also archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, and I am talking today with my good friend Chase Hageman of the Concord Coalition about the fascinating topic, at least to us, of debts, <laughs> deficits, and politics. We have a $23 trillion national debt. We have an annual deficit of a trillion dollars. We're talking about investing in health care, investing in battling climate change. We're talking about, many of the candidates anyway, are talking about how do you pay for free college for everybody? How do you wipe out all the student debt? Many of the candidates on the Democratic side are talking about some really big programs that could require substantial investment and long-term thinking. Now, as a former member of Congress, I can tell you that long-term thinking is not the mainstay of discussion in Congress because... You know, every member of Congress is up for election every two years in the House of Representatives, and that means that it's uh, let's let's put something together that'll get us the most bang for the uh, attraction to the voter buck that we can manage. And rarely is there long-term thinking, but it seems to me, Chase, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that 
with the structural deficits that really are the big biggest drivers uh, underneath the the statistics of the debt and deficit, we're going to need to be thinking about long-term solutions. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what those structural deficits are. Then let's talk about how that plays into the investments we're going to need to make in battling climate change and reforming our health care system, where the costs, at least in the short term, are costs. In the long term, they may be investments that pay off and help us with the debts and deficits. But what are we going to do? How does this work? <laughs> Give us the uh, well, answer. Right, right oh, now it doesn't work, Paul. That's the short answer. Right Obi- now it's not working. Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> help, us, oh, help us, Obi-Wan. You're our only hope. Well, you mentioned uh, I could correct you if you were wrong, and, and you're certainly not wrong. There are some there are structural drivers uh, with, with the uh, annual budget de- deficit and the long term outlook on our debt. And you know, it, it's hard to talk about this topic in a way that's not going to result in some kind of political attack because the biggest drivers are the biggest programs within the federal budget, and that's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Interest on the debt happens to be the fastest growing area of the federal budget by virtue of how much debt we're adding. We're lucking out a little bit in that interest rates have stayed artificially very low, but we still spend, this year we'll spend more than $400 billion on just interest. And that, that gets back to sort of the investment issue that you were talking about, Paul. And we'll dive into that a little bit later. But we're on track to spend more on interest than national defense in like five or six years. That's over $700 billion. And again, that's under assumptions of relatively steady economic growth of around, I think, 2% and interest rates getting back up to, uh, slowly getting back up to a more uh, normal level. And they're right now they're like around 2%, and that's very low. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's sort of its own beast that, that can be addressed as we address those underlying issues of getting back to those bigger programs. And the reason why I said it's hard to talk about these issues is because Social Security and Medicare have a massive beneficiary population. And uh, in no way am I saying I think we should gut those programs, but the way they're designed right now, they're not responding well to the demographic shift within our country as the baby boomers are retiring and the workforce isn't being repopulated as quickly to help uh, keep the ratio, really, is, is what keeps those systems humming, keeping the ratio of of taxpayer to beneficiary at a, at a level that is sustainable, and we're we're tilting in the opposite direction there. Within, I think I think it's about ten to fifteen years, we'll be basically be at a two to one ratio in Social Security, and that's a pretty heavy burden per taxpayer. At a point when the generations in our country are shifting, frankly, older, and then we have issues in Medicare as well because of healthcare cost growth, and again. Uh, demographics are shifting pretty heavily within the country. So there are a lot of things that can be done to address those issues that, that don't really even involve, you know, drastic cuts and benefits. But they are things like, you know, tweaking uh, payroll taxes or tweaking uh, the cap on the payroll tax for Social Security or adjusting a little bit how cost sharing is done in Medicare or finding efficiencies or instituting new um programs and efforts to actually slow down the growth, the cost growth within the healthcare system. Because right now the debate in healthcare, which is probably is a very legitimate debate, is focused more on who's going to pay. 
not really how much we're going to pay or, or how we're going to slow down cost growth so that it's actually affordable. We're very much focused as a country on, you know, whether it's going to be a government-run government system or a market-based system or a hybrid of the two. And, and from my view right now, that's the, that's the wrong way to look at this issue, at least at this moment in time. So I, I was, that was a very long-winded answer. That may not even have answered your ultimate question, but uh, I, this is the type of conversation that we need to be having amongst our elected leaders, and it's not really taking place right now. So what's the problem with having a $23 trillion national debt? What's the problem with a annual deficit of a trillion dollars? I mean, does that mean we're borrowing, the federal government is borrowing money from somebody? And if so, from whom and on what terms? And where does that put the United States? Yeah, so we'll, we'll do a little um, debt and deficit 101 on this real quick. Uh, so we have a, a $23 trillion debt. It's broken up into two primary categories, our publicly held debt and intragovernmental debt. The latter is uh, basically trust funds for uh, um, debt the government owes itself. That's where the Social Security Trust Fund, the Medicare Trust Fund, uh, would all be housed. Then you have publicly held debt, and that is debt that uh, is held by domestic investors and foreign entities and foreign governments. And that's about 78% of the economy. Uh, I think it's like, that makes it about 16 or $17 trillion of that 23 total trillion dollars in national debt. Uh, so the government has to pay interest on that debt to whoever holds it. Um, in, the, in the instance of intragovernmental debt, it's paying the interest to itself. Uh, but in the instance where it's, it's publicly held debt, that interest is being paid out to whoever holds the uh, ultimately the, the treasury note or bond uh, or bill um, that, that has been purchased by someone who lives within the country or who lives abroad or some government who might hold our debt. So that's sort of how the debt system itself works. Some of the reasons why it's bad to have such a large debt, and, and debt itself is not a bad thing. There, there is the concept of good and bad debt. Uh, there's debt that you uh, take on because you're focused on investment and, and long-term gains and, and you know, focusing in on, on certain parts of the economy or, or certain needs within society. Uh, but then what we're doing right now, though, is really financing our operations. And for anyone who runs a business, that's not a great place to be. So the, the deficit <clears throat> that we were talking about earlier that's at about a trillion dollars, that's how much the government borrowed to meet our spending needs. Uh, and so when you think about how much a trillion dollars is and you think about how much we spend in other parts of the government, so for instance, I think Social Security is around a trillion dollars. Uh, national defense is around $700 billion. Medicare and Medicaid combined is around a trillion dollars. And you're starting to see that we've gone from you know, having investment-focused debt to just uh, having, having debt that largely just keeps the, the system uh, running along for as long as we can afford it. And, you know, we can afford it right now because we're viewed as one of the safest investments in the world. And that's one of the reasons why our interest has stayed so low. But there are still negative ramifications that come along with it. It can result in uh, handing a lower standard of living off to future generations. It's a deal with the cost of that debt service. And I've already mentioned how, how quickly that's growing and how significant that is. It reduces private and national savings. It result in slower wage growth. It makes it harder to respond to future crises, whether they're uh, economic and domestic or international and some kind of conflict. 
when you don't have much room with interest rates to adjust to that downturn, it becomes more difficult to respond to it. And it's also very limiting in the federal budget. It, it makes it harder to prioritize when you consider the fact that those big programs that I mentioned that are driving a lot of the structural issues take up about two-thirds of the budget. So about a third of the budget is left to uh, Congress to basically play with on an annual basis. And if anyone's been paying attention to what's been going on in Congress, you would notice that they're not playing with that third of the money very well right now or even getting through the normal process. So there, there's a laundry list of things that come along with this. Um, but I think to go back to your earlier point, and, and maybe from my perspective right now as a millennial looking ahead at the future of our country, having all these underlying issues makes it difficult to invest in the future, makes it difficult to uh, allow future generations to set their own priorities and adjust to things like climate change or adjust to things like a slowing economy or uh, technology taking over entire industries and needing to retrain and move workforces into different industries like this. This is a huge, uh, pro- big-picture problem for our nation that, that funnels its way into a lot of these little categories. And I think that's probably the biggest kicker for me is helping, helping people understand that even though we have this mammoth number, this mammoth figure and these recurring deficits, you need to realize that whatever your personal passion is, whatever your personal priority is, it's more likely than not impacted by this. Well... If I was to uh, create a pie chart of the federal budget as it is today with our trillion-dollar annual deficit, how much of that pie chart would be taken up by what the federal government needs to pay to service that uh, annual deficit? Well, if you think about it, <clears throat> um, comparing the revenues and our outlays or our expenses, we spend a little over $4 trillion a year, and we bring in revenue at around $3 trillion a year. So we're already in the red. If you're going to put a pie chart on how much, uh, of the de- how much of the budget is covered by the deficit, it would span several major categories. It's, it's kind of difficult to hone in on one thing and say, this is where the debt service, or this is where the, the, the debt is covering uh, the gap here. But I can put a figure on the debt service that comes along with it, and it was over you know, $400 billion last year, which is close to 10% of the federal budget. So 10% of the federal budget, $400 billion, is basically what we need to spend to service the annual deficit that's the interest right. that's the interest on the annual deficit uh, right. and if if i if you think about it 400 billion dollars if i looked at uh, almost the total uh, spending on um, certain important expenditures like what what the federal government spends on education for example I bet I bet there'd you'd be pretty close to uh, equivalent with interest on oh, yeah. the debt and what you spend on education. Yeah, I think uh, the last tally I made uh, in my head was if you combined education, transportation, and I think it might have been Veterans Affairs. Those three categories of spending would fit in how much it costs just to service the debt, not not the debt we incur each year, but the cost from the interest just to service it. Mm-mm-mm. So. The bottom line is that debts and deficits hurt the federal government's ability to spend on more important 
priorities that we may have. It right. it creates a challenge when we have uh, when we're looking at investments coming up, and it's uh, among other things saddles future generations with a real a real problem. I mean, just imagine that that uh, you know. I mean, you can talk about inheritance and estates and estate taxes and all that, but imagine that that in that that we were basically handing off to everybody in this country who every who was going to be born from today on and we're going to hand it off and say <laughs> okay here's 23 trillion dollars in debt that's your birthright your birthright yeah. is 23 trillion dollars in debt good luck <laughs> From your federal no, government. No thanks, I'm going back. <laughs> We're talking with Chase Hageman of the Concord Coalition. It's off the record with Paul Hodes on WKXL. We've been talking about debts and deficits. Chase, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me. We'll be back to wrap up this edition of Off the Record after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at NHTalkRadio.com. Well, just a quick wrap-up of today's wrap. Uh, Chris Ryan and I, with our heads spinning, our tongues wagging, our jaws dropping to the floor, tried to get through some of the current events which seem to be preoccupying us. We can't even... We, we don't even have enough time to talk about all the developments because they're coming so thick and fast. As Chris Ryan said, President Trump is flooding the zone and man-to-man isn't going to work anymore. Who knows where this circus is going to stop, but don't follow the elephant is all I can say. And then we talked with Chase Hageman about debts, deficits, and politics Debt is not good. Deficits are a real problem. And nobody's talking about it in politics because it's kind of just too messy to think about. But we'll think about it here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL, AM and FM, streamed live at NHTalkRadio.com. Thanks for listening. You and all my dozens of listeners are what keep me happy and keep me talking into this microphone. Or as... Ronald Reagan famously said, Mr. Green, I paid for this microphone. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. We'll see you next week, folks. Bye-bye.